Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, a worker's guide to everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things left the island and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenigisoltas. Hello and welcome once again to Trademark Belfast podcast. Um, I'm joined today by two good friends and comrades, Dr. Amanda Slevin, who is Director of Queen's Centre for Sustainability, Equality and Climate Action. She's a teacher, she's a researcher, she's an activist in her own right, and I know she focuses on subjects that we're very interested in, climate breakdown, but also the, in particular the socio-political implications of climate breakdown. We're also joined by someone who used to be a regular, hasn't been on for a while actually, Professor John Barry, mate and comrades, who also, as some of you will know, is the host of the ABCs of Green Politics, another podcast on the Left Block platform. And I've asked them to come along today to join me in a discussion around, um, I suppose, really climate projections, warming projections for this century. I remember I was at a conference with John, John was speaking at it two or three years ago. And I remember the thing he said, because it scared the shite out of me, he said, everyone was talking about 1.5 degrees above uh, pre-industrial levels, and we'll get to that, what that means in a minute. And John says, forget about 1.5, we're going way past two. And that kind of stuck with me. Um, and that was about four or five years ago, John. And there's a, there's a graph that we use in our training, which I'll, I'll put up on the podcast so people can see it. And it has those kind of warming projections. You know, it has that idea of uh, how bad things are in the get between now and 2100. Uh, and the graph shows that um, whilst we want to stay at 1.5, our current pledges have taken us to 2, 2.5. But actually, where we're heading is 3.5 to 4 degrees above pre-industrial levels by the end of this century. So that's kind of the focus of this. We chat with two people who know their stuff, by the way. So you will, I'm listening to my bullshit. You'll be listening to them. I'm just hosting and asking the questions. Now, this January was the hottest January on record. Will we kick off? Um, the global average temperature in January 2024 was 1.7 degrees above pre-industrial levels for the month meaning that the planet had, had breached, if you like, that 1.5 degrees benchmark for the last year. Now, I know that climate scientists will regard the limit not really having been broken until that happens year after year after year. But nonetheless, it's a worrying <laughs> threshold to have breached. And so I'll come to you first, Amanda, if I may. And you might give some of our punters just a very brief kind of understanding of what's the significance of that 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Uh, why, why, is that, why is that threshold important? It's important for a couple of reasons. Um, on one hand, we have international agreements, um, such as the Paris Agreement, which committed to um, taking efforts to limit temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius globally and committed to well below two degrees above pre-industrial levels. So we have this legal uh, framework that governments across the world have signed up to. But also we have the scientific evidence that points to 1.5 has been really key. Because when we reach this temperature, as we've done over the past year, but as you say, we have to have it year after year, um, and, and that does seem likely. When we exceed 1.5, scientists have been warning us for a long time about the effects that has in terms of temperature increases, change in weather patterns, and a wide range of socioeconomic consequences that we're already seeing uh, mm-hmm. on these islands and are set to expand uh, for every bit of temperature increase that we, we see. Yeah, and just to follow on to you again, Amanda, before we go to John, the last year has been really strange, the weather I've noticed, people are beginning to notice it, particularly in terms of the amount of water that we get, the amount of rain that's fallen. Around here where I live in County Down, there's been floods where I've spoken to farmers I know who are in their 70s and 80s who are telling me that's never happened in their lifetime. I mean, 
what are some of the most likely impacts, even just at 1.5 degrees in terms of weather? Like just in terms of weather, let's just focus on Ireland for the moment. Uh, what we'll see with 1.5 degree in Ireland, and indeed what we're already seeing is increased storms. We're seeing heavier rain, increased flooding. But then in the summer months, we're actually seeing increased temperatures as well. So the likelihood of droughts, of food shortages, um, and of heat stresses, particularly in urban areas. Um, so these all have implications for our food, for food security, for health and well-being. And so these weather patterns are driven by human activities, burning fossil fuels, and in turn affect the very conditions that we need to live as humans. Yeah, thanks for that. And that's just at 1.5. The yeah. listeners will see where I'm going with this. I'm stepping up the level of, uh, of concern here as you go from 1.5 to 2. John, in terms of... Um, the potential consequences just at 1.5, which you would suggest, and a lot of people think we're past already the sense of what's in now is baked in, and we just know that's put in, that's going to happen. What are the consequences for, like, for biodiversity, for natural resources, um, given given the current model of capitalist expansion and growth? You know, what 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 are they, even at 1.5, what are we looking at? We're looking at being fucked. I mean, there's no two ways of sugarcoating this in terms of. I'm not saying that to be a woke down with the kids professor, although of course I am. Is that we really doing start we in the academy and scientists who know this stuff have a duty to let people know it is worse than what people think. Even though, as you said, you know, January this year is 1.7. On average, we're now looking at, we're at 1.1 at the moment. And the chances are that probably this year, because it's an El Nino year, which is a naturally occurring phenomenon, which already increases the climate system, we're probably going to transgress the 1.5 degree threshold. We're already at 1.1. We've seen the things that yourself and Amanda have pointed out, even here on the island of Ireland, in terms of floods, storm surges, you know, uh, hotter weather in in the summer. And this, yeah, people say, oh, isn't this great? You know, be able to get a bit of a tan in the summer. And it really annoys me the way the mainstream media report actually uh, these issues. But it has a serious impact on our food system. I mean, I don't know what the figures are, but somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of the Irish potato crop is, has been destroyed this year mm. because of the flooding that you were, were talking about, um, Stefan. And as we, each temperature, you know, bit increase, every point, point one, point two degree, point three degree increase just makes it even worse in terms of heading towards, at the moment, you know, we're looking at at least a 2.7 degree warmer world. And that means parts of the planet become uninhabitable, where we can maybe get into it in terms of we should be framing this in terms of an apocalyptic creation of an uninhabitable planet for many people, which will have impacts just to finish, not just in terms of food or the direct physical impact on people's bodies and so on. But actually, in a place like where we live in Ireland, which has got fairly low population density, we will see Ireland being an attractive place for having to take in people who are now going to be displaced by the climate crisis. I mean, so there's the climate refugee issue, for which, of course, we've got no legal protection. So it's worse than people think. We have invested over 30 years in these, you know, big conference of the parties, these international agreements. They've achieved very, very little, if, if nothing. And we're now seeing our policymakers and mainstream parties invested in these techno-optimistic bullshit solutions that somehow there's going to be, you know, a tech that's going to save us. And they're all aimed at, in my view, just to finish in terms of greening capitalism, uh, electrifying the Hummer, as the analogy I often use, and really 
um, people need to get woke in the proper sense of the term, waking up to this, not least because it is something I would like to talk about in, in a while, because it, it is going to affect this island and the other islands and, and Western Europe as a whole, is the recent um, evidence that the AMOC, that's the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, what we often call the Gulf Stream, it's the reason why Ireland and Britain and many parts of Western Europe are fairly temperate. That is showing signs of, of, of weakening. Uh, and so we're already beginning to see the impact of these major changes. Yeah, we'll get back to that. There's a really interesting debate, really interesting research happening about tipping points, which, of course, seems entirely unpredictable. But they're the ones that really, if you, you want a scary story to keep you awake at night, it's those potential environmental tipping points. But there's also social and political tipping points as well as how climate breakdown affects how we produce and share resources and the goods and services people need to lead decent lives. Just quickly to you, Amanda, in terms of, we know the impact of here at 1.5 in Ireland is going to be, as you've outlined quite clearly, increased flooding and unpredictable weather and storms and all the rest of it is going to impact on and food production. But what are other various reasons around the world? Stand, how do they stand to be affected? Because there are, there are some parts of the world clearly that are going to be, you know, at the moment, at 1.5 and above, going to be worse affected than others, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, Stefan. There's a, a massive global inequality when it comes to who produces the greenhouse gas emissions, driving climate breakdown and those who are worst affected. Um, in 2022, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, said that around 10% of households with the highest emissions contribute up to 45% of uh, consumption-based emissions. Uh, yet the bottom percent, 50%, only contribute 13 to 15%. Now, it's the bottom 50% who largely live in Africa and in Asia and uh, what is often described as development countries or the global south that are the worst affected. So we can see that, um, you know, if we look at for a, a comparison there, North America cause, is estimated to have caused about a quarter of all global cumulative greenhouse gas emissions since 1850. They have emitted more than the combined emissions of the whole southeast and Pacific areas, Africa, Australia, Japan, New Zealand and southern Africa. And then if we look at the consequences then on our brethren in the global south, we see particularly Africa is the worst affected. So there's some research come out by Verisk Maplecroft, which look at risk analysis, and they estimated that about 95% of the 234 cities most at risk of climate breakdown are in Africa and Asia. And then they see whatever risks we see here in Ireland, on across the island of Ireland, we'll see those risks far more exacerbated in Africa. So we're seeing high patterns of flooding, drought, heat waves, reduced food production and reduced labour productivity. But we also see then heavy flooding causes higher mortality and forced migration. So we see higher incidence of things like malaria, Ebola, West Nile virus and so on. And that will all contribute to increasing mortalities for people in the global south. So we have this massive discrepancy around who's most responsible for the global emissions and who is worst affected. Um, and humans are only one species who are most affected. Mm. That we are most responsible ultimately. But if we look at figures um, on biodiversity, we can see that other species are massively affected as well. Um, so United Nations Development Programme talk about the triple planetary crises of climate change, um, of biodiversity loss and of pollution. And we've seen uh, estimates by the Intergovernmental Panel of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services that humans have caused the extinction of over 600 species uh, in the last number of years, where another million species face extinction. That's about a quarter of all species globally face extinction because of human activities. And that is linked with climate change. Um, so we have all these forms of inequality, or what I like to call socio-ecological inequalities, 
that are really tied in with human patterns of production, consumption, our addiction to fossil fuel and how we are ingrained in this global capitalist system that is based on ever-increasing consumption um, and with devastating consequences for, for different species in different countries. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that in at the, the end there because it is linked, of course, to the, the, the economic system that we live under. I know that capitalism, and everyone knows this stat probably, kind of capitalism to function needs 3% you know, growth per year annually. Um, otherwise, it goes into that official recession. But I think it might be New John that told me that if you have 3% growth per year, that means in the next 20 to 25 years, production of goods and services and their distribution and consumption and the waste that comes from needs to double in 25 years. So we seem to double all the economic activity on the planet in the next 25 years just to keep this system going. Now, given all of that that you've told me at 1.5 and above, and, and we've you suggested or telling us that we know it's going to go above that, and we know we're going to hit two and possibly past two. I want to talk about the key differences then about those impacts if we go above two degrees, which looks as if we will this century, towards a three degree rise in global temperatures, 2.5 and above. And I know you can't predict when that will be, but it'd be interesting to find out what you might think. You know, is it, cause, Because one of the things that surprised me in the last five years, I remember the IPCC reports that coming out at all, in 12 years, such mm-hmm. and such and happen. And then it's in 18 months, we've got 18 months to save the planet. And then it's like now and like, fuck me, that was, that was quite yeah. quick. And it seems to be that things are speeding up and moving towards us at, at a high rate. So just on that on that one there, John, if you could focus on it, how does the increased frequency and intensity of extreme weather events look at 2.5 to 3? Just in, in Ireland here, but also globally, just give us your ideas on that. Uh, I mean, I mean, the simplest way of, of trying to explain the whole climate issue, it's a kind of an energy imbalance. I mean, ultimately, um, the ultimate form of pollution from a, a physical point of view is heat. And what's happening is essentially, that's why it's called the greenhouse effect. We get ambient solar radiation from the sun. We're pumping up greenhouse gases. That acts like a blanket over the planet in the upper Earth's atmosphere. That means that, that we cannot reflect back out that ambient radiation from the sun. So it's being trapped. It's like, sadly, it happens every year. Gobshites leaving their dogs in the car during, you know, a warm summer spell. And of course, the dogs cook. That's effectively a horrible analogy for what we're now doing. We're literally cooking the planet and all living life on it. So as we increase the energy in the system, so each portion of a degree global average rise increases more energy in the system. That means the more frequency we will see in tornadoes and storms and storm surges, the, the more kind of monsoon-like precipitation that we've experienced here in Ireland. And people ask me, oh, wh- why are we getting rain and global heating? Well, it's a very simple physical fact that the warmer the air, it holds more moisture. It has to go somewhere. So sadly, in places like Nuri and Portadown, Straban, Cork, Limerick and so on, we've already seen, you know, uh, examples of these extreme floods. I mean, you know, the poor people in Nuri are still recovering. I thought it was three million pounds worth of damage that was done when the centre of Nuri, um, you know, flooded. And so basically each degree temperature increase just means that we're increasing the energy in the Earth's system, which can then reach a point. And this is the tipping point issue you raised, Stefan, mm-hmm. earlier, that no matter what we do, the Earth system could just flip into a completely different age, uh, or sorry, balance in terms of energy and the uh, relationship of climate and weather patterns, which, you know, will mean that it's literally uninhabitable. Human beings have never had to live in a world like this. Um, and it raises questions around, particularly in equatorial parts of the world, in Africa and Asia, as Amanda said, the very countries that have done least to cause the climate problem, they are the ones already suffering um, the impacts. But even we here in the global north are not immune to it. 
I mean, if you have a house on a, a floodplain area, certainly in Britain and Ireland now, it's increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to get house insurance because your house is uninsurable. Mm -hmm. So these are really beginning now to start to bite. But the issue is to see it as an energy uh, imbalance problem where, where we have too much energy in the earth system. It, it always rains. We always have storms and tornadoes. But the issue with the climate dimension of, of humans and the production of greenhouse gases is these storms and so on are more frequent and they're more severe. I mean, just think about it. I think it was two weeks ago. We had one storm end and then another one begin like the next day. You know, so we're this is the new normal in a way yeah. that we're going the to interesting the interesting thing about that. And I'll get onto this one later on is that how people just pass that off as normal. I mean, five years ago, there wasn't a storm every week. Yeah, it, there was one or two in the winter, maybe one in the summer, weirdly every five years. But last couple of years, it's, you know, from November through to the end of January, it's like, is there another name storm we're going to get? We're going to up to PQ and RNS very quickly in terms of name storms. But yeah, I want to get one quick question for you, Amanda, in terms of um, Ireland and well, other parts of the world, low lying areas um, and flooding is a big issue, isn't it? And sea level rises, because that's another thing, because most human beings live on the coasts of the continents that we live under. So big cities are either on rivers that are going to flood or they're on the coast that are going to flood. So if the polar ice caps continue going and the Greenland ice sheet continues going in the direction that they're going. We are going to see this century in the next even the next 10, 15 years, major flooding events and, and encroachment on coastal areas. We're seeing it already all around Ireland. Absolutely. And some projections for places like Belfast estimate that we could be looking at up to a meter of sea level rise by 2100. Now, that seems far off, but it's a big, big amount of flooding. Um, and we can see others. John has mentioned other towns that are particularly vulnerable and cities are particularly vulnerable to flooding where they could see a significant part of the year underwater or threat of flooding. That really affects habitability of uh, towns and cities um, and also puts increasing pressure on people uh, being forced to move elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But yet the sad thing is we're rather privileged up here compared to what other countries are like. You know, we're looking at massive food shortages and migrations um, associated with climate change. I'm just looking here at um, a report by the United Nations Development Programme said that about 2.4 billion people globally, 2.4 billion, are facing food insecurity tied in with climate change and other uh, human-driven um, forces. That's up from 800 million in 2020. So in two years, yeah. the amount of people facing food insecurity more than doubled uh, globally, um, actually went three times uh, in that period of time. These are the issues we face. So yes, we're going to have worse conditions uh, and sea level rises in our towns, cities and villages. We're going to have problems with food um being able to feed ourselves but on a global scale is that, is that a real threat is that a, is impact on food production a very real threat in the next say 10 20 years do you think i mean i know we've had massive food inflation but others have argued well that's more to do with supply shocks and to do with covid and to do with the war in ukraine and that shit getting fucking stuck in the Suez canal and stuff like that but is there a genuine threat to food production in the next 10 or 20 years i mean are we going to see food prices gradually just getting higher and higher and you know, people expect to see strawberries, don't they, in their supermarkets in the middle of winter and tomatoes. And there's, I can see a time coming when you're going to walk into a local supermarket and you'll spy and you're just going to see empty shelves. And those are real issues. Part of the problem um, we face as an island is that we are really dependent on global food um, chains. So we import a lot mm. of our food and also export a mass amount of food as well. Um, so we are affected by the fact that a lot of us aren't growing our own food anymore. We're dependent on buying in food from other countries. 
Um, we're also, you know, bringing a lot of food to feed animals, to feed humans. So there's a whole issue there about meat and dairy production. Uh, and those were particularly affected by things like the shocks you've mentioned, like the war in Ukraine mm. and elsewhere. Um, so part of the problem we face now is that because of the globalised nature of the island, how we're deeply embedded in global supply chains, that we, we no longer have the capacity to feed ourselves the way that we should. And that does require us changing systems of food production, localising, being able to go back to what my grandparents have done, grow your own food, my parents do grow a bit of their own food, to go back to that sort of thing. because You, ha- you, hardly, you, know, see a, you hardly see a country garden anywhere in Ireland. No. It, it just doesn't exist. Every, every family member, my granny and grand, both granny and grandparents, both had, like you said, a country garden that they lived on. And that's, that's, I don't think any modern farmer knows how to know how to produce beef and produce mutton and lamb, but I'm not sure they know how to produce well, food, actually, it, you know. It, it brings home a really important issue in the, the transition. If we start to see policies being put in place to deal with this, the two most important things we need to have as locally sourced and provided as possible, one is energy, because without energy, mm. you could do shag all else with anything in terms of modern society and energy provides so many benefits and welfare for people. The other one is food. So food security and energy security, not in that crap fecking, you know, securitization, state security mode. I just mean in terms of things like food sovereignty is probably a better term and energy sovereignty. Uh, they, those are two things that I, I, I can begin to see people are awakening up to this. I mean, COVID and the disruption with the long supply chains brought out the issue. Amanda said we're incredibly vulnerable in terms of food uh, and COVID brought that out. But even there, um, there was a, a drought in, and, and, and Spain is suffering you know, horrendously. Spain and North Africa, which supplies the UK and Northern Europe with a lot of market vegetables, you know, avocado, mange too, you know, cucumber and so on. Um, these were massively impacted there um, a year or so ago. Uh, and so people can already see, I'd like to think that they're beginning to see that's not just the agreedflation or the crap, you know, um, blaming it on the Ukraine and so on. You know, they were more profiteering and price gouging, you know, issues in, in our food safety and food security have to do now with the climate. where We just simply cannot grow the crops that we, we, we you know, we used to. And the issue is, of course, that globalization itself is part of the problem. We, we will need selective deglobalization, you know, to really enhance those issues of national sovereignty over resources around energy and food and not in any sort of little islander you know, um, petty nationalist view is that it just makes functional sense. And you have more control as a society if you have control over big energy and and food. And this is where, just to finish, I think we in Ireland can start to learn from initiatives in the global south, like La Via Campesina, you know, those demands for land rights. We have small initiatives here in Ireland, like Tal of Bio is a great kind of farmers organization wanting to break up the large, you know, capitalist export oriented system that we that we have. Um, and it seems to me that we're, we're not really at the stage yet, even on the left, of talking about those issues seriously of food and energy sovereignty. No, no I want to I can't we can't do it today. But when you come back and I hope you'll come back, I really want to talk about that rural transition. I mean, there's a huge issue there about, you know, and the rights are right in that space, yeah. by the way, and the climate deniers are right in that space. And, and I'm going to say the right. I mean, the extreme right are in that space recruiting. Some people in rural communities, this idea that, you know, that, that they're going to ruin their way of life and 
we we make food, we create food for Ireland, and we grow things. Well, no, you you create food for export. That's different from markets as a whole. But that's definitely a story we want to get to because I don't think there's enough people talking to people in rural areas about that transition. And if, and I know you've done a lot of work on the Amanda too on the just transition in rural and urban areas. But when we come back, we'll have a chat about that because it's for me it's a crucial area, particularly in Ireland and particularly in rural areas. But to you, Amanda, in terms of you mentioned before about um, migration. And I was at a meeting on Saturday, um, a meeting of lefties in Dublin, and it was talking about how we combat the far right. And of course, the issue of migrants and asylum seekers and refugees is huge. And it's a big political issue everywhere. Not this is a big issue, it's a big political issue. People are making more of it than exists, of course. But if people think migration to the north is like an issue now, what's it going to be like in 10 or 15 or 20 years? Yeah, that's that's a, the, the biggest issue, some of the biggest issues of our time, Stefan, is is that reality? Is that because of what we've done in the global north, we're making villages, towns, cities in the global south uh, unlivable? And people want to need to live. Mm-hmm. See, we'll move as we've done for the whole um, duration of, of humanity. We'll move to, to get shelter for food, for water. Um, for energy, all the, the basics that we need to actually live to, for basic uh, quality life. And you're absolutely right. The far right has jumped on vulnerabilities and are playing on those to try and make themselves relevant to people in a way that they have not been and are not mm. really. But when it comes to the climate migration issue, you know, I think part of where you, you give the example of um, the far right targeting farmers. And what I see happening is that they are targeting already vulnerable people across the island, people who are struggling socioeconomically, perhaps, people who have historically been left behind in periods of growth. Um, and they're deliberately going on there and creating fear, uh, generating hatred, um, burning down houses. And that's something we really have to talk about and really face is, Unless we have a socioeconomic system that looks after everybody fairly, I think this is only going to get worse. You know, yeah. the, the, these um, incidents of, of hatred and terrorism that we see the far right embarking. Um, and we need to address that now to also be able to support our global brethren who are being made homeless because of what we have done uh, on a global scale. Um, so yeah, definitely thing, Stephen, that's things we need to tease out more broadly for the conversations, yeah. but it, it's really crucial because a climate breakdown and the biodiversity crises and the pollution that we see, plastic pollution and what that does to water, to food, to human health, you know, we're seeing particles in our blood supply, plastic particles. Um, these are all key issues, but we also have to look at what is the long-term consequences for, for everybody on this yeah. planet because we, we, we're all interconnected. It's it's amazing to me because one of the things that capitalism promises is that it can produce enough stuff for everyone to, to live on and it can produce and produce. And it is an amazing productive system. And yet so many in the world have so little. That's capitalism's problem with, you know, with redistribution, not with production. And yet with climate breakdown, we're actually going to see the thing that the far right are accusing people of now, which is resource competition. I mean, they, you know, there is a point in the next 50, 60 years where possibly there won't be enough to go around. And that, that's the real danger, unless we stop it unless we mitigate the changes to climate breakdown so we can maybe come back to that question next time we meet john a last couple of questions one you mentioned before amok that i can't i don't even say atlantic was it meridional overturning yeah. circulation thing which i know there's been a couple of reports on that there's an article actually yes in the guardian about it um that talked about another piece of research that shows that you know, if that system turns off because of whatever i saw you know um i don't know because of the melting of the ice caps or whatever it has massive implications for for the entire planet, particularly for this bit of it, if you like. Um, it hasn't happened in more than whatever, 10,000 years, but they're saying that it's going to happen this century, but they just don't know when. 
those tipping points, those feedback loops that are in the Earth systems, which are, I suppose, they're they're not impossible, but they're very hard to predict. That that's the real scary thing for me, because that that takes you into kind of Hollywood, kind of yeah. day after tomorrow, kind of debates and discussions isn't it, about how yeah. could things get really bad really fucking quickly. Fine. No, it is. I mean, it goes back to something you mentioned earlier, is that, again, neither Amanda and I are actually climate scientists. We're, we're social scientists who are reading uh, the climate and ecological science. Um, what's really interesting is the last couple of years, how surprised climate scientists are, have been of underestimating how quickly things that are going to think happen decades, you know, into the century are happening much, much quicker. And um, there is an issue with tipping points. Again, it, it's uncertain. But of course, that's why we should be uh, adopting the precautionary principle. You know, part of the one of the many problems with capitalism, particularly on its tech end, is this headlong rush into developing uh, technologies and then figuring out afterwards when it's created chaos, or we invent another technology to 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 solve it. And when you're dealing with very complex systems like the Earth and the ecological system, we're better off, you know, being precautious, being risk adverse in terms of the interventions we make into these systems that we don't fully know how completely they they you know they work. And the issue with the AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or it's part of the system of the Gulf Stream, it brings up warm water from the Gulf of Mexico, which helps keep Ireland, Britain, and Western Europe fairly temperate. It is showing signs of weakening. Now, I don't want people to be, you know, any more scared than they probably are that's going to, you know, collapse tomorrow. We don't know. But certainly it has scientists um, extremely worried that if it does weaken and and collapse, we're looking at, um, and this sounds odd then to people, you're talking about global warming, we could be looking at a new ice age here in Ireland and Britain. You know, part of the reason why we're not the same temperature in Belfast or Dublin as, as Winnipeg or a coastal city in northern Canada that have, you know, minus 30 degree winters quite commonly and so on is because of the AMOC. So it keeps our, you know, this landmass temperate. And we're not even beginning to see any serious policy discussion. How do we adapt to a world in which here in Ireland and Britain, we're looking at these sub-zero temperatures as a new normal? What crops do we grow? What jobs are possible? What investments in our infrastructure? And, you know, the, the reality is we're not really seeing any of this being reflected in any policy, you know, development at all. And that's where I, I'll go back and, you know, credit to myself and Amanda and others like us in the academy who do have this knowledge that we do have an obligation to bring this to communities through podcasts like this or the media or public meetings. Because it really is we're telling our, our citizens that it's not that the, the government are lying to you, I'm not going into conspiracy theory, but they're not being honest with people about telling the truth about how bad things are, in part because they realize that the only solution really it won't be a tech one. It's not going to be a modest liberal reform. We need fundamental system change, which is why, as you probably heard me say a few times, both of you, purely for functional scientific reasons now, I'm an eco-Marxist. You know, you can have the ideological reasons for, you know, making the world a better place and more equality and so on. But really, the only solution we have now is a resource-based planned economy and a planned response that we had, the only two experiences I ever have or uh, go-to um, examples in our near-living memory is the Second World War. That was mm -hmm. a state-led response and, and the uneven state-led response during COVID. But that idea of the state has to come in and start mobilizing the resources of our community 
to protect us as it did on the COVID. And in this case, to create a sustainable world for, for us all, because the first job of any state is to protect its people at the moment. It's absolutely fucking failing. Yeah, and, me, and meanwhile, we have governments in the Republic of Ireland talking about fiscal space and how much they can possibly use to mitigate some of these changes. And over in Britain, you've got that fucking idiot star man talking about the government's maxed out its credit card again and those ridiculous arguments about, you know, money's limited, resources are limited. And we've had podcasts on the magic money tree before yeah. and on state investment and the need for state planning. And of course, I mean, the economy is planned. It's just planned by capitalists for capitalists. That, that's the issue. We need to have a democratically planned economy uh, that deals with these issues. Last question, here. I'll come to you, Mandy. You can jump in at the end. And it's one that I've always been interested in about. It's that, it's that analogy of the frog, uh, the frog being boiled in water. You know, when you, if you put a frog, a frog into cold water and boil it slowly, it kind of just boils itself to death. If you fuck a frog into boiling water, it will jump out. I mean... When, when will people realise they're being <laughs> boiled in water? When will they jump out? When will the impact happen? When do you think people will finally, or will the fear just drive people down and drive people into dark, narrow, fascist spaces on this stuff? Um, or will people finally realise we need to change it? Will it be food prices? Will it be, you know, seeing empty shelves? Will it be breaks on where they can travel, how they can travel? Will it be mass migration? When do you think people will really be able to feel this? Amanda, to you first. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think people are starting to feel this already. But as John has pointed out, there is an issue about people not being told the whole truth. And we also have built in resistance by states and capital because there, there's reluctance there to fundamentally transform the socioeconomic systems uh, that are associated with capitalism. We also have state capital into relationships and interdependencies. And that is all threatened by by us doing things differently, by communities organising for themselves, for new forms of democratically planned uh, citizens, cities and, and countries. So when are people going to feel they're the frog? I think people already are, but this is the risk that we face now is that what is going to be the spark mm. either towards positive transformation or towards negative transformation? We're facing massive changes one way or the other. The question is now, how do we communicate the messages in a fair, positive way, so we're not terrifying people. Yeah. Um, how can we point to people that transformations are possible? And indeed, with transformations, we can create a better world for everybody, not just the elite that that benefit now and who are able to go are most responsible for the missions driving climate breakdown. Um, or do we then fall, you know, wait until these negative things like f food shortages and, and the rise of the far right to then react against them? And I think we need to be proactive. We don't have time to wait and react mm. to external forces. We don't have time for to wait until we have a strong political movement uh, through elected representatives. We have to act now with citizens. We all have to act. We all have responsibility to take action now to make these changes. So part of that is political education. It's consciousness raising. It's providing resources and supports to communities to plan for what activities they can undertake. And also to create hope that change yeah. is possible. But change is possible. But the point is, is it going to be positive change or is it going to be the negative reactive change that are also possible? Yeah, it's a really important point that Amanda said there, John, isn't it, about a hopeful vision and a hopeful sounding future? No, because but, uh, the last no, thing you can say to working class communities is, for your future, if you want to survive, it's going to be really shit and you're going to have less stuff and you're going to have, going to have a worse uh, life. And we need to have a different message of, uh, of, of abundance, of abundance of free time, yeah. of abundance of healthcare and yes. education. So it's how, we, it's how we pitch the message, isn't it? I mean, what we need is a working class climate politics that moves absolutely beyond this kind of moralizing, guilty, 
kind of degrowth uh, position. Because if you say to somebody who's got no arse in their trousers and they're trying to scrape by on, on the brew or on benefits, oh, the vision of green climate politics is something you're going to have less of. You know, sod that, you know, you know, most people are not going to get behind that. And that's where, you know, we've got to go back to that socialist principle that we're offering public abundance, good universal basic mm. services, decent health care, free public transportation, you know, free or low cost energy and food. There is absolutely enough to fulfill not just everybody's needs, but actually to have a decent quality of life for everybody. Um, so we have to move beyond this kind of um, negative view that the future is uh, one of poverty or having less. This kind of scarcity language. Now, don't get yeah. me wrong. I mean, the, the planet doesn't give a shit if we have eco-luxury communism or horrible ecocidal capitalism. It'll just shift the human beings, it'll shrug and, and, and shift us like a bad cold. You know, it, it is an issue of, you know, must be aware of the biophysical limits of the planet. But, but even within that, the point is that there is a politics of pleasure, of abundance, of joy, of people's needs and more being being net of holidays, of luxury and so on. But it has to be away from the uh, how the good life and so on is being presented under our current capitalist system, which is all very privatized. You know, can you afford a second or third home? Can you afford to fly, you know, twice a year uh, and, and, and so on? Or can you afford to buy the things that you you need? That's why I've got a lot of, you know, um, hope, to use that term Amanda used, of, of reclaiming that positive socialist state-led um, re reappropriation of our resources and putting them to the use of fulfilling people's needs and wants as well. And to move away from, you know, this idea of penury, of sacrifice, which often comes from a very middle class place, it has to be said. Working class people need more. There are people in our society who need more. But we can have that only if we change the structure of our society. It's not just about taxing the rich to give to the poor. You know, that could be maybe part of the opening gambit into saying to people, listen, we don't suffer from a poverty problem in our society. We have a wealth problem. So let's deal with the problem at source and move into a different type of economy. Give capitalism a decent burial. We have to recognize, as Marx himself did, it has produced a lot of good things. It has now outlived its welcome. Let's give it a good Irish wake and move on to something better, a politics of, of sensuality, of pleasure, and of more, and of affluence and abundance. I think that will get people more excited, along with the kind of the apocalyptic. So in my view, it's a, the apocalypse <laughs> in one hand and affluence in the other. Love it, John. Love it. I want to, uh, if there's any of those kind of centrist Leinster rugby dads listening and they're whining about how we're going to pay for this all, I want you to come up to the trademark office so we can all stand in a line and punch you in the face because we're not listening to that fucking stupid debate anymore, all right? How the fuck are we going to pay for this? But we'll get on to that one again. Look, thanks very much for your company, you two. I want, I want you back on because I think we're just touching on there at the, at the end, of course, because you don't want to leave people feeling down when you're talking about the coming storm and apocalyptic visions of the future. But we do need to talk about what is to be done, in the words of that famous Russian geezer? Uh, what is to be done and, and, how, and how do we do it? Because all of us, all progressives, all leftists, all environmentalists, we're all on the same page on this now anymore. There's no divisions. There's no, I know there's an awful lot of sectarianism still exists there in those political spaces. But um, what Sterics in the face demands collective action. I think we all agree on that. And, um, uh, and we'll come back, I think, and we'll talk about what is to be done. So until then, thanks very much for your company. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and um, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll speak to you all again soon. Don't forget to check out the other podcasts on the Left Block platform. 
John Barry, John Warren, the ABCs of Green Politics, the Northern Organised Language Podcast, The Week at Work, and North, a new one which is on there, which looks at the relationships of the people on this beautiful little green, non-producing food island. All right, see you all next time. Slango foil. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Up the workers and slango foil.